Philippians 3, um, I'm going to pray because we need to um, ask for way more than I have to offer tonight. And so um, pray with me. Um, Jesus, just, uh, just as John prayed, just as Pastor John prayed, would you, uh, be, would you be lifted up? Would you permeate um, our study? Would you permeate our minds, our attention, our focus, that it would be on you, that we would see you high and lifted up, that we would see what you've declared from heaven to be true on earth and, and called us to while we're here. And so, Jesus, only you can make that happen. Holy Spirit, I ask for the ability to teach. ask for the ability of all of us to learn, myself included, as, as I think all of us, I imagine, will be stretched in some way, shape, or form um, through this, this sermon. And so I, I know that I've been stretched, um, and I know that we may get some ruffled feathers, but um, the gospel comes to afflict um, the comfortable and, and to comfort the afflicted. And so I pray that um, we would be in a beautiful tension with your word, the truth, and the calling in our life, and that uh, ultimately, Jesus, that it would cause us to worship you more. And so we love you. I praise you. Can't wait to see you again. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're new, um, how many of you are here for the first time on a Wednesday night? Haven't been coming? Anyone? All right, so we're in a series called On Earth As It Is in Heaven. We've got a pretty cool graphic. It might pop up at some point. And that, of course, comes from Matthew 6, 9 through 10, which is really our anchor verse through this series, though, as you've seen, it's been somewhat topical as we're anchoring on this verse, and then we're, we're tethering out from the truth of that, and we're taking a look at some of the extensions that come from this prayer that Jesus was giving to his followers, which was, this is a prayer that, that perfectly prepares and presents your heart before God. And this prayer, not to be muttered and mumbled repetitiously in vain. Um, He literally said, don't do that with this prayer, but he gives us this perfect example, this modern Uh, or this this model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount that he gives in Matthew 6. And he begins by saying, in this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven. So again, we have that familial, special access to a Father, a perfect Father, despite whatever your experience with your Father has been on earth, whether good, whether great, whether horrible, whether depraved, you have a perfect heavenly Father, and you have access to the things of heaven through him and the person and the work of Jesus. And he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And Jesus says, look, a a perfectly postured heart before God says, it's about your name first and foremost. It's not about my personal fame. It's about your name. And so he says, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, he says, not my little empire that I get to build over the course of my career with my family or my plot of land. He says that hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then he says these profound words. He says, on earth as it is in heaven. And so he breaks this divide that so many people have, which is that God is this far off entity that sits there with a condemning finger and he looks down at us and, and we're just trying to figure this whole thing out. And he says that, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, that we have access to the father and we can know his heavenly precepts and perspectives and that our heart's desire would be to see his perspective reflected through us, through the church, through different areas in life, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. It's a challenging prayer. It's a challenging prayer because then how do we do that in a world that doesn't all worship God? How does that look? And so we've been taking a look at this passionate, prayerful plea that that God's heavenly perspectives and precepts would be made manifest through, in and through us on earth. In week one, we took a look at the Imago Dei. It's known as the doctrine of the Imago Dei in the image of God, that we as individuals were created uniquely apart from all other creation to reflect him. Your dog was not created with the responsibility of being a reflector of the gospel. As great as you think your dog is, okay? As great as you think your cat is or your fish or your bird. It says, unlike lower creation, we have been stamped in the image of God. And so we are first and foremost image bearers of God. And then in week two, we took a look at marriage. I just performed one last night in Joshua Tree. Drove three hours, 10 minutes ceremony for an elopement, three hours back. Right, it was, it was, it was epic. It's two friends um, that I've kind of met through digital stuff and through some of my side businesses and hadn't met her yet, but had met him. Drove out there, spent a couple hours with them before, went out into the Joshua Tree National Park. Just me, the couple, 
a videographer and a photographer. They're literally moving from Tulsa to Seattle. They drove from Tulsa to Joshua Tree. I drove to Joshua Tree, married them. Now they're going to finish all the way up to Seattle in the next three days. So just kind of a midway break, get married, do that whole thing. Okay. And so it's a standard road trip. We've all done it. Okay. And so, um, and, and, and what I talked to them in, in, in our little intimate ceremony was that God made them and loves them individually. And now God loves marriage and he's going to take two individuals, each called to reflect the gospel. He's going to make them one. And now as one, they're called to now reflect the gospel. And so in week two, we took a look at marriage and how that can reflect the gospel. Week three, we took a look at family. You throw kids into the mix. Okay. And we see that we don't worship our family, we worship with our family. And so even in, in family with functional submission, with the father as the head, the, the mother as the, the helper, and the children functionally submitted to the, uh, to the parents, we see that's a picture of the Trinity. We see that Jesus was no less God because he hung on a cross. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross for your sins. God the Father didn't die on the cross for your sins. It doesn't make Jesus less God. It means that he has a separate role, even though he's equal, he had a separate role. And so we see the same thing in marriage and family. We saw in week four, we took a look at work, that God created work before sin. I know it doesn't feel like that in the morning. It feels like this is the fallout of sin, but, 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 but work was pre-sin. Like marriage, it was before the fall. There's only two perfect people that have ever, two perfect men that have ever walked the earth. One was Adam and one was Jesus, and they both worked even though at the time for Adam and through his entire life for Jesus, unaffected by sin. And so we see that work is a way that we reflect the gospel. We don't worship work. We worship with our work. Last week, we took a look at church. We took a look at these three epochs in human history. I want to go over this real briefly again, because we see that God has instituted his people in three different time periods in all of human history. And if you read about this, the Old Testament, you see that God's people were called what? Israel, right? Israel. Then as we took a look, currently God's people are known as what? The church, right? The capital C church made up of lots of little C churches, but the capital C church. So Israel moved through human history, pointing to the coming Messiah. Jesus came and now the church moves through human history, pointing to what? The coming Messiah. And then if the church is raptured, which we believe here in, in, in Calvary chapels that we're going to be raptured before the tribulation, which I'm super personally excited about. I don't want to be there for that. I want to be in heaven, like stadium seating. Okay. Watching the whole thing go down. All right. And so we're going to see if the church is raptured as we believe, then the Holy spirit seals 144,000 Jews, not Jehovah's witnesses. Okay. And they move through human history pointing to what the coming Jesus. And so these three epochs of God's people, we saw that the the phase that we're currently in is the church. It's not like we're thousands of years from the cross and we don't know when revelation's coming. So we're just spinning around waiting for something to happen. It's that we have a calling to reflect the gospel on earth as it is in heaven, as the church body, not just as people, not just as married couples, not just as families, not just as workers, but as the church. And then today I'm going to dare to end with a topic we're not unfamiliar with in this church, citizenship. And I have to do so in a way that challenges all of us because I believe that's what the Bible is intended to do. And I believe on this topic, maybe you haven't been surprised with topics in the past. You know, oh, it turns out the church likes marriage. Yay. Okay. Right. Maybe you haven't been too surprised or too challenged, though I hope you've been challenged. I think we're all, myself included, going to be stretched in this one. We're all going to be stretched. And so I want to endeavor into this look at citizenship. And perhaps it's potent timing that our nation, as of yesterday, is currently embroiled in a raging debate centered around not only just policy or politics or change of administration or this or that, but specifically about what? DACA, right? DACA, a a program designed by the previous administration to protect some 800,000 young undocumented immigrants that were brought here as children, okay? Probably didn't have a say in it, okay? That is being undone. There's a time period based on latest information. They're, they're reworking it. They're going to do all that. I'm not going to touch on it. But you can see that even at the, the, the tightest, it, right down to single policy decisions, citizenship is a part of this country. It's something that others crave for. 
There, there, I, I don't say this disparagingly, but there are not floats, there are not rafts being constructed to get to Cuba. There are rafts being constructed to float across shark-infested waters to get to America, to be declared, hopefully, one day, perhaps, a citizen. I have friends. I've got a friend from Brazil who just a couple years ago was finally declared a citizen. She's been here forever, married to a firefighter. They've got kids. They go to this church. Okay, Citizenship is a big thing. It's a big deal. And though we certainly can't attack every area or go through everything, I, I think you could, you could see that every topic we've touched on in this series could potentially be a year-long series, right? We could do this 52 weeks, okay? But I do want to attempt to wade through what's the often murky waters and examine the biblical view, at least a top-level biblical view, a macro view of this understanding of citizenship. And here's how I want to do it. Is citizenship, I'll give you five, is citizenship, civic engagement, matters of public policy off limits for the Christian worldview? Are we to shed that when we wade into these waters? We'll answer that question. That's going to stretch some of you. The second one's going to stretch the others of you. We're going to take a look at, is America a Christian nation? Third, we're going to take a look at what is the purpose of government currently and in relation to how it was formed for how are Christians to think about engaging in the civic realm of citizenship and why are we to engage in the civic realm via citizenship? Does that make sense? I'll say it again. Is citizenship, civic engagement, matters of public, public policy off limits to the Christian worldview? Is America a Christian nation? What is the purpose of government? How are Christians to think about engaging in the civic realm via citizenship and why are we to engage in the civic realm via citizenship? Sound like a task? Ready? Anyone going to get mad and leave at some point? You already know which bullet point you're, you want to fight on? All right, here we go. I'm going to start with Merriam-Webster because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a I'm a word nerd and I love how Merriam-Webster a lot of times gets it so wrong and then sometimes gets it very, very right, okay? And citizenship is defined as the status of being a citizen, great, Two, membership in a community. So you could say you're a college citizen, you're a citizen at your school. You could even say, though we don't really use it in common vernacular, you're a citizen of your job, that you're a member of a community. And I liked the third one, which says the quality of an individual's response to membership in a community. So the quality of an individual's response to a membership in a community. So if you are here and you are an American citizen, that's a yes, no, that's a legal, pretty black and white sort of thing. You're either in the process, but at some point you are or you are not. The question becomes, what is our response? Is it different for Christians? Do we have a heavenly perspective that God has declared that would influence how we frame citizenship, both in our mind and in our daily lives? And so that first one is, is citizenship, civic engagement, matters of public policy off limits for the Christian worldview? It's almost silly that we have to answer the question because everyone comes to the ballot box with predisposed beliefs, yes? You can come there from any religion. You can come there from no religion. You can come there with a hatred for religion and have the right to vote as you see. But if we believe that the gospel affects, if you believe, if you say, I don't believe this, it's a different conversation, granted. But if you believe that the gospel affects every area of our life, what Brett in our discipleship group called the unlimited gospel, if the gospel affects every area of our life, our, our earthly citizenship is not off limits for that discussion. If we believe what Jesus taught earlier, the chapter before, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he says, you are the salt of the earth. So you've been sprinkled on earth from heaven. Now we know that salt was both a currency as well as a preservative in ancient times. It's not like now where we had refrigeration units. Okay. It was life or death for your food, which could mean life or death for your family. And I like to draw the delineation that salt could not reverse decay. Do we agree? 
Anyone here has figured out how to do that? If so, I want to talk to you afterwards. We'll bottle it. We'll sell it online. We're going to make a killing. If you can find me a salt that reverses decay on a steak that's going bad, we're going to crush it if we can do that. It doesn't reverse decay. What does it do? It slows decay. So I think already a lot of us have said, well, we're the salt. And so we are going to pull back the decay. And that's where the stream of Christian reconstructionism comes from, which is this idea that we will rebuild. We will pull back all the layers of decay and we will work our way back to a holy nation that God demanded from us, desires from us currently. It's not true, but the Bible does say that you are salt and light sprinkled on earth to not remove not undo ultimately, but to slow decay. Cause we know what happens in the end. Don't we? Anyone hasn't read the end of the Bible. Christians absolutely do know the future, by the way, we absolutely do in that regard. It doesn't work out for those who oppose Jesus. We do know that a kingdom can rise while society falls. Now we don't want society to fall. We want to be salt and light, but we ultimately know that what they want, they will get. It sounds harsh, but that's why we've been sprinkled is to be there to slow that decay is to, is to be salt and light. He says, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing. Those are tough words from Jesus. If you've lost your potency as salt, Jesus says, then you're good for nothing. Hold on. Jesus is of love. It's his words, not mine. This isn't kumbaya Jesus. He says, look, I've sprinkled you on the earth to slow decay, to, to be a light, a city, as he says. And if you're not, he says, oh, then you'll just be tossed out. You're no good. You, you've lost potency. You, you may be saved. Doesn't mean you're on the field. You could make the team without stepping on the field, right? We've talked about that. You can make the football team and ride the bench the whole time. I was on the team. Eh, cool. Great. I'd rather be on the field advancing the ball, yeah? Some of you are like, no, I'm on defense, right? <laughs> He says, and it's good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. That's what will happen to the church that loses its potency. You are the light of the world. He starts to use civic language. A city, he could have said a group of people. He could have said a clique. He said, he could have said a circle of friends. He could have said the church. What did he say? A city. Civic language. He says, you're a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify you, glorify the GOP, glorify Democrats, glorify the president, glorify the church. What does it say? Glorify your father in heaven on earth as it is in heaven. This is not the building up of our own fame. This is hallowed be thy name. And so our, if we believe that, what Jesus just taught, and if you're a follower of Jesus, by the way, it's, it's like required that you believe what he teaches. I don't know if you know that. We could talk about that afterwards. And so it's our earthly hem- citizenship is then not off limits. If we believe that we are called to, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, bring every thought Bring every thought. It doesn't say any non-civic minded thought. Any thought, marriage, love, life, career, spouse, children, family, any thought, which includes any thought in the original language, bring that thought into captivity and to obedience to Christ. So if you believe that, then our citizenship is not off limits. If we believe, as it says in Colossians 1, 16 through 18, and I brought this up in the sermon last night in Joshua Tree as well, because I, I, I proposed that if they made Jesus preeminent, that would be the single greatest piece of advice that I could have for them. And it comes out of Colossians 1. It says, for by him, all things were created. Do you believe that Jesus created all things? The Bible says he created all things. People are like, he didn't create this. No, we assembled that out of material that he created. We don't create anything out of raw material. We don't create raw material out of space and time. But he says, for by him, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him, that's Jesus, and for him, that's still Jesus. And he is before all things and in him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, in all things, he may have preeminence. 
If you believe that in all things, Jesus should have preeminence, our citizenship is not off limits. This concept is not off limits to who we are, who he says we are to be, our marriage, our family, our work, as we've been going through. That in all things, he may have preeminence. If you believe that, our earthly citizenship is not off limits. But inevitably, here comes the second bullet point that y'all have been chomping at the bit to get to. The question arises. And I need you to know that Pastor Rob and I had this conversation a little while ago, okay? He agrees with what I'm about to say. There are different implications that you're about to see starting next week, but he agrees with the thrust of what I'm going to say, and it is this. The question inevitably comes, is America a Christian nation? It inevitably comes up. You've probably heard it from your non-believer. Do you believe, you, you know, America's a Christian nation? Who knows the answer? What do we think? Is America a Christian nation? The answer is, I can say this definitively, depends. Like a good sociology minor. It depends on what you mean. This isn't the meaning of if. But it depends on what you mean when you say Christian nation. If the question is whether or not the majority of Americans profess to be Christians, the answer is yes. According to a 2014 religious landscape study conducted by the Pew Research Center, 70.6% of adults in the U.S. identify themselves as Christian. Identify as Christians. We'll take that number. Now, you start to say, do you go to church? It drops significantly. So you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? It drops significantly. So we could do that all day. Whittle down to what I believe is actually a very small minority of people that actually believe what Jesus taught. But 70%, if what you say, when, if what you mean by, is America a Christian nation? If you are asking, do the majority of Americans profess to be Christians? The answer is clearly yes. And it could change. If the question is whether or not God is in covenant with America, the answer is no. America, from God's perspective, is in no way set apart as a nation. From God's perspective. American exceptionalism is a political concept, not a biblical concept. You may hold to it. I may hold to it. You may have an argument. We may have done cooler things than any nation ever. We may be more moral than any nation ever. We may have documents that describe a relationship between founders with God, but God is by no means forced into a covenant with anyone. If Iraq today got every single leader in their parliament to sign a document that said, we are a Christian nation, is God forced into a covenant with them? No, God causes covenant. We don't cause, dictate covenant. So if when you say, are we a Christian nation, you're talking about sheer stats, yes. Are we set apart as a special people, unique from God's perspective? No. I know that's tough. Let me show you. The Christian church around the world is God's holy nation. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you, who's he speaking to? America? America didn't exist, people. <laughs> We are a baby in the span of time. We are a blip. I want to hold on to it. Yeah. I, I put on the uniform and went and killed enemy for it. I've, I've stood on the front lines of those who oppose it. I've looked radical Islam in the eye as they flipped a switch and detonated themselves. This isn't about patriotism. This is about heavenly perspectives that challenge and restore our view so that we would have hope in him rather than entrenched in the world. And so 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are the chosen generation. Is he talking to millennials? Clearly not, right? Like, come on, no, no, definitely not. Is he talking to Gen X? Is he talking to the greatest generation? No, he says, you are the chosen generation. Who is the chosen generation? A church, a royal priesthood. Who's he talking about? Catholic priests, pastors only, deacons, elders. The church says you're a royal priesthood. 
He says a holy nation. Who's he speaking to? Church. That's God's holy nation. First epoch, second epoch. He says a holy nation, his own special people. It's tough. It hurts, but I pray it restores. It gives you relief. America is not God's special people. The church is. And the church is called to love America, just like the church is called to love every country that it exists. We're no longer bound by government. We are free under God's authority. And it says, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's as heavy as it's gonna get. Some of you are rattled and shaken and that's fine. We can talk afterwards and love our way through it. But I would submit to you that on a statistical side, we are a Christian nation and it changes. It's shifting as we speak. But from a theological perspective, God has no special relationship with America. Now, the people that founded America may have a special relationship with him. That's cool. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God does not look down now and say, I am now in covenant with America. He's in covenant with the church. Amen? All right? So we're all stretched. Everyone's mad. We'll work on it. Here we go. So then what is the purpose of government and how does it relate? In the Old Testament, and this is where a lot of confusion comes from, and I talk about this with a lot of folks, and they generally come out the gate firing with Bible verses, but which side of the Bible do you think they're always coming from? The Old Testament. Now, true or false, God used the government of Israel to set his people apart. 100% true. God established a theocracy over Israel that said, you are going to be a set apart from all surrounding nations, from all Gentiles, and we have to have a way to set you apart. Jesus hadn't come yet. So he says, you're going to be known by your ceremonial law, the things that you do in the temple. You're going to be known by your civic law, which is that which is done in the courtrooms. You're going to be known by the moral law, which declares who God is. Jesus comes and he fulfills the law. He was the reason there was ceremonial law so that they would know the coming sacrifice was coming. He was the reason there was a civil law so that he knew that the coming king was coming. The moral law, which still exists today, we don't pick and choose. We understand the arc of all of scripture. The moral law, which says this is who God is. This is how he interacts with the world, right? The 10 commandments is known as moral law. People are like, so you don't believe that anymore? Of course I do. Because then when Jesus came, he fulfilled those and they carry on. And we knew that he was God because he didn't break break it. And so I've done a whole series on that. Rob and I talked about it a week ago. I said, Rob, I'm coming up on citizenship. And remember, I I did a series where I took a look at civil, ceremonial, moral, and then not the law, but grace. And he says, go, Mark. He said, live in the tension, do it. This congregation can handle it. Most churches in America, like empty by now. They're just like, nope. Right? If you're here, it's because you're willing to be stretched in this arena. Okay. So the question becomes, what is the purpose of government? One of the purposes in the Old Testament was to set apart the nation of Israel. But we are now defined by what Jesus has done, not by the laws that our government holds. Thank goodness. Anyone else? Anyone freed up? Anyone freed up by that? Like, like the, the, the political climate does not dictate God's work in the world. Like the laws that are passed are not a reflection of what he's doing in the world. It's a reflection of a fallen world trying to make their way through life with government and sin and people. So what then is it? It no longer defines God's people, but it does serve God's purpose. You need to know this. Now we're going to swing you back. Maybe get a couple more of you on my side after this. Okay? People don't don't seem so happy anymore. We've had a lot of fun this series. This is a bang up way to finish it, right? So, okay. All right. So no one's still laughing. All right. I'm super uncomfortable. Did Joe leave? No, Joe's still here. But he sat down. Photographer's like, this is going south real fast. All right. so, So government no longer defines God's people. But it does serve God's purpose. You need to know that, that it is a part of God's common grace. That the, the Bible declares that one of the ways that all people will know that there is a God is by that which he has instituted regardless of their beliefs. It's what's known as common grace, experienced by all. The Bible says that every time it rains, you know that you, you have no more excuse to not know that God exists. Every time you breathe, every time you laugh, every time you hear music, 
Every time you taste flavor, it's a sign of God's common grace. An atheist can taste flavor. A Christian can taste flavor. An atheist can live under a good government. A Christian can live under a good government. An atheist can live under a bad government. And a Christian can live under a bad government. And this common grace is the way by which we experience God regardless of our faith. Then over here, there's saving grace, which is I've taught on as well. Just tons of ways that once you become a Christian, you experience God, his saving grace. This is for Christians. This is for all. Government is one of the ways by which we can understand God, even if we reject him. Does that make sense? And so we live under this. It no longer defines God's people, but it serves God's purpose through common grace. And I'll give you two purposes currently. I would say biblically, the two pillars of government. We know that the the pillar that said, this is how you will know who God's people are. They will live under this theocratic system. That was completed in Jesus. It has been left to the annals of history. But I would say from the New Testament perspective, there are two pillars upon which the government stands. And I hope I'm not going to step on anything Rob is about to teach, but he would agree that these are two of the main purposes. One is to restrain evil. And two is for human flourishing. I'll show you. Romans 13, three through four says for rulers. Now who are the rulers? These are easy questions. You guys are acting like you don't know. It's like, he's always trying to trick us with stuff. <laughs> who are the rulers? The teachers? The priests? Congregation? Who are they? Government. It's okay to talk in church. It's fine. Relax. So for rulers are not a terror to good works. Now that's a call for government. Are there some governments that are a terror to good works? You better believe it. Cuba penalizes people if there's too many people making the same type of product. If you're the guy that makes chairs, only you can make chairs. If you find a better way to make a better chair, you can't make it because he got the deal. They terrorize a good work that he wants to do. He wants to serve his neighbor with a better chair. There's better lumbar support. Government says, we already have a chair guy. They literally do this. That's why I think one of the fastest way to restore that country is to inject free market capitalism. Fully believe it. But they penalize a good work. It's not like he's doing anything wrong. He wants to make a better chair. Like, no, we got a chair guy. We only need one person and this is what he's going to charge. This is how he's going to make it. He's got no incentive to make a good chair and he can't make a better one. So some governments are a terror to good works. He says, for rulers are not terrors to good works, so they should not be, but to evil. Where's Brian? Brian and I were talking about this. Is the, this our conversation last week is what made me slug Romans into this because I couldn't remember the verse off the top of my head because Brian came up to me afterwards and asked about becoming a Marine officer and, and if God could be glorified in the violence that we are trained to inflict upon the enemies. And I said, you betcha, Brian. You betcha. You know why? And I, was, and I couldn't remember this, but it says that rulers, governments, and the extensions of the governments are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same for he is God's minister. He being the entity of the government for he is God's minister uh, to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. People are like, how can you, how could you Christian Marine Corps, Iraq war? Says if it's evil, be afraid. If you're Hitler, be afraid. Never attacked us, never invaded our country did evil and got return. And then the world asked us to be their police. That's why the UN is in New York, right? The world saw it, said, oh, they stepped up. If you do evil, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is God's minister. That'll shake some of you up. The pacifist Christians, they never go over this. That he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. I'll give you a second one. If that one was too tough and you want to discard it. First Peter three, 13 through 14 says, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the King as Supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him. Brian, you absolutely could be sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. We don't revel in it. We have a different heart when we do it, but we can execute it. My sister wrote me the best letter before I wrapped. She says, if when you take life, she said, remember, they're creating the image of God. Could be a brother, a husband. She's like, but by all means, execute wrath. Under the laws of land warfare, under the authority of my CEO. 
Not that I needed her permission, but she validated. She said, look at them as a child of God, but know that, the, that God calls some to execute wrath in a world that's fallen. Sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. And so one purpose of modern government is to restrain evil. So you step into the ballot box as a Christian, you absolutely have a new, fresh, well, it's not really that new, a couple thousand years old, but you have a perspective that the world, even if it doesn't know it, needs. When you step in to say government, one of government's calling is to restrain evil. The world says, well, he doesn't have evil. There's no such thing. Okay, fine. You vote that way. I'm going to vote this way. And that's okay because we're restraining evil and God has a call on government to restrain evil. The other is human flourishing. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says, therefore I exert first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Do you see how he connects with coming to a knowledge of the truth through the ability to live a peaceable and godly life? It's right there in the same sentence. He says that government would provide a protective layer so that people can flourish. By the way, I have a cousin who has recently subscribed to Islam so that she could be married. I want her to flourish until she says that I don't get to flourish because I'm a Christian. She gets to flourish because she's a Muslim, which Jenna won't. But if Islam says you don't get to flourish, only we do, then I'll go to war with you. But under a pluralistic society, under a government that says, You're allowed to flourish in the way that you see fit, as long as it doesn't violate the way that Mark is going to flourish with his family. That is good government. And so not only do we restrain evil, does God want to restrain evil through government? He wants to allow for human flourishing. And he says, as people flourish, see, God's not afraid of the free marketplace of ideas, by the way. He's not. He he wants Christians to live and to thrive and to flourish because in the same sentence, he says, this is one of the ways that they're going to understand a knowledge of truth. When they see the church living this out, when they see married couples living this out, when they they see families living this out, you've got evangelism, you've got apologetics, you've got church, you're loving and serving and ministering to it. My mom called me when, when my cousin came out Islam and, and my cousin called me right away. Hey, been, been married for a couple years. Didn't tell anyone I'm totally Islam. She wanted to fight. She wanted to. I said, okay, tell me about it. Just asked. Called my, and my mom's like, did you talk to Jenna? My mom, yeah. My mom's sister, or my mom's niece. My mom said these words. I said, mom, I, I said, mom what are you going to do? I was like, I, she's like, what did you guys talk about? I said, I didn't even debate. I just wanted to listen for that. She goes, he, my mom goes, Mark, we have to love her where she is. Those were her words. Love her where she is. It's tough, but I want to debate. It's not going to do anything. Have you seen Facebook recently? Anyone change their mind on Facebook? Oh, I totally see the point of your argument. I'm going to totally undo everything I've thought. I'm going to go back and delete all my comments. You're totally right. I've changed the whole way I live now. No one does it. We want to fight, don't we? It's easy to fight. It's tough to love. My mom says, we're going to love her where she is. We're going to pray that if God ever indwelled in her, he won't lose a fight ever again. She may be backsliding her face. She may have never been saved. We don't know. It's up to God. But our call is to love him there and to flourish and for her to witness our family and for us to witness hers. And so restrain evil and human flourishing is at least two pillars of modern government. Our next bullet is how are Christians to think about engaging in the civic realm via citizenship? This is where I'm going to completely abdicate my responsibility as a pastor and just read a passage for not a passage, a, a section of an article that I read. And I was literally reading it and being like, all right, how can I put this in my own work? Forget it. I'm just going to copy and paste. <laughs> I'm going to give her all the credit because I was just going to butcher it some way. And so Jennifer Marshall, the vice president for Institute of Family, Community and Opportunity, the Heritage, Heritage Foundation says this, because as we're, as we're dealing with this, how are we to think? What is our, our mindset? As Paul says, be, be renewed in your mind. As I said before, we're free to bring our faith to the civic arena while allowing others to do the same, so long as one doesn't declare that it cancels the other out. And look, I've studied Islam. I know what it says. And I know that that is actually a pillar. 
Okay. If it's not being laid out here, I'm, I'm okay with my cousin Jenna flourishing. But, but the moment that she advocates something that I can't flourish under because of her religion, that's where things change. But we are free to bring our faith to the civic arena while allowing others to do the same. The free marketplace of ideas. Christians should be able to win in the free marketplace of ideas, by the way. We should. We actually should have reason, better reason, better logic, better philosophy, better apologetics, more love, more care, better marriages, better families, better being, you know, the operative word. I, I know the, the irony of that. We should be a very different testimony with our lives alone, let alone our words. But Jennifer A. Marshall says this. I'm just going to read it. I think it's just, it's well done. The blessing of living in a self-governing society carries a particular responsibility. In a free society, citizenship involves a wide range of decisions that require much reflection. Good stewardship in this case case requires at least a basic understanding of civics and the issue of debate. But a Christian's grasp of the matter ought to go beyond an 11th grade government curriculum. This church is not surprised by that. A biblical worldview should shape our diagnosis of the problems politics seeks to address— and our vision of how to resolve them. I've been saying this for a long time with my frustration is that, that the church gets all uppity about that which the government is doing. And to be honest, they're trying to fill the void that the church has created. I'm a, I, I, my wife and I ditched the health insurance market, by the way. We ditched it. We're a part of Samaritan ministry. We're like, this is, it's chaos. It's absolute nonsense. We're now in a Christian sharing organization. There's MediShare, which is a big one exempt from Obamacare. And there's Samaritan Ministries. My wife are a part of that. And, and people are like, yeah, it's just crazy. It's so dumb that the government wants to get in. And not really. They're trying to fill a void that the church has often created. I hate all the welfare programs. Cool. Have you served at the local homeless shelter recently? Well, I, I, I have a job. So do I. I've got six. You want to go to tit for tat on that? Have you served the poor? Have you fostered adopted? It's crazy with the government. They're just trying to fill the void that the church is called to fill. To be honest, look at the plank in your own night, church. Government's trying to fill things that God has called the church to do. By the way, I'm a, I'm a total supporter, probably of your pr- perspective. I've studied the entire Bible. It calls an individual, a family, and a church to support the poor. Never calls the government to. Never. But it's really hard to keep blaming the government for stepping in where the American church doesn't want to play. Does that make sense? It's tough because it burdens me. It does. We live in an affluent suburban Thousand Oaks complaining about the government and we don't serve. At least, I got to give them this credit, at least they're trying to do something about it. When's the last time you worked at a food shelter? When's the last time? When's the last time you took in an outcast? I, I know the stats. I know that you can make a ton of money as a panhandler. I'm not talking about that. But it gets, it gets tough for me to hear the church complaining about that when we're not doing anything. Enjoy, your, enjoy football this weekend. You're fine. Don't worry about it. But there's another side that's going to try to fix it. And they're experiencing part of God's common grace. His, his, his common grace that says you should provide for others. They at least have that heart. We say it. We don't really do it. It's tough. I told you it was going to stretch both ways. And she goes on. She says that begins by an understanding of the integration of politics with the rest of life. Politics isn't just an election season that happens in Congress. It's not primarily about the endless debate on Fox News or MSNBC. Thank goodness. Politics is about the way we order our lives and servants of the creator and Lord of the universe make a vital contribution to that endeavor. Politics is the way we figure out how to meet everyday needs, solve problems, and sort out our differences. It's about harmonizing diverse interests and building consensus about what is worth pursuing as a society. We work out all issues in all kinds of forums, from family rooms to boardrooms to congressional hearing rooms, each with its own authority structure, each exercising a variety of roles and responsibilities. We ought to approach all these arenas with a coherent biblical worldview. It is necessary and proper for Christians to enter the public square with a biblically shaped perspective. This is not unique. Everyone brings fundamental assumptions to public discourse. 
So I say, you got to leave your faith at home. You can't vote. No, ever. You're bringing your lack of faith, your history with faith. Everyone brings it to the table, to the ballot box. Every public policy. Oh, voting is an exercise in expressing a worldview. Is it not? You can hate the Christian church and vote accordingly. I stood on the front lines and said, I'll fight for your right to vote against the church. I'll lay down my life for that ideal. I'm not afraid of the free marketplace of ideas. If we stand on truth, we shouldn't be scared. If we stand on what God says will actually work, we shouldn't be scared. We should work for it, point to him while we do it, and have hope, which we're going to get to. It says, every, pub, every public policy expresses a moral judgment about what is good from seatbelt laws, right? I've debated that. I wear all the libertarians, like, seatbelt laws are terrible. Protect me from myself, right? Like, we debate this stuff, right? I'm a motorcyclist. People are like, from other states, like, oh, it's crazy. They make you wear a helmet. I'm like, it's dumb that you don't wear a helmet, right? I might not even agree with the law. Like, sure, yeah, let some guy be an idiot on a motorcycle, but strap me in, okay? Every, from seatbelt laws to tax reform to the definition of marriage, to apply a Christian worldview to such questions of public policy isn't self interested. I love this. I'm going to start over. To apply a Christian worldview to such questions of public policy isn't self-interested. It's serving our neighbor with truths that they may not know. But God says, there's a better way. I have better ideas and I'll give them to you from heaven so that you can instill them on earth. And so we're called to be salt and light, to bring every thought and make it captive and obedient to Christ with the desire to see evil restrained and humans flourish, even those we disagree with, as partakers in God's common grace for all. So why are we to engage in the civic realm via citizenship? This is why I had you open up to Philippians 3. Normally sermons start with the Bible. We're just going to end cap the whole series with a chunk of the Bible. Sound good? How many people have I made mad tonight? Come on. (laughs) They turn the video off. They're like, forget this. No, so. Philippians 3. We're going to start at verse 12. We're going to read through 21. I've, I've I've taught the sunshiners once at this church. You want to talk about intimidating. I'm not scared by anyone. But you walk into the sunshiners... And like, I had kind of this like burden on my heart that like, I've got to stretch them. Like, I can't be just like, hey, how's everything? Like, you know, Jesus loves you. You heard that last week. I'm gonna tell you again. Like, I wanted them to be stretched. I honestly, I'd spoken with some of them and they're like, you know, we don't, you know, churches don't really challenge us much specifically. And so I somehow, it was a couple years ago, I got, I got impressed upon that I should roll here and, and I saw why and, and I'll, I'll maybe show you why I think it'll stretch all of us regardless of your age we'll start in verse 12 it says not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected but I press on check this out that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold before me brethren I do not count myself to have apprehended but one thing I do forgetting those things which are behind I pressed them on the fact that as you get older your idol becomes the past We hear this a lot, man, America used to be great, right? And we worship what America used to be. And by the way, I'm going to say this partisanship. I I say this as a non, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican, okay? I come from Republican Party. I wrote a blog. I was interviewed on Michael Medved. I've spoken with Dennis Prager, all that. I get the whole bit, been there, done that, okay? For me, at a time right now in my life, God has pulled me from my idolatry of partisanship. Doesn't mean you have to leave by any means, the party. Stay with it, fight within it. I'm called right now out of those. But one of the things that I even preached to Republicans when I was a part of that party was that we lose because all we do is look back. You're trying to sell the next generation on something they don't even know. They never even experienced. They don't care about. Well, they should care about. Oh, stop. You should care about the way it was in the 50s. No one cares. We don't. We weren't there. I wasn't. I was born in 81 and I feel old. I was born two days before Reagan was shot, right? I don't know what the 50 people, oh, America was so great. You're not going to get my vote on that. Talk, and you want to know why Obama won? What did he do? Hope and change, man. He pointed forward. 
whole time. Republicans, I don't get it, man. We just make America great again. Let's go back. No, maybe it worked this time. But, but to be honest, a lot of us do. We, we, idolatrize, we idolatrize the past. It was great before. Man, now the millennials come. They don't know how to do anything. The head's in their phone whole time. It's terrible. And I challenge the seniors, don't worship the past. You need to have a hope for the future. If not you, who? Right? And so I pressed them on that. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Doesn't mean we don't remember the past. It just means we don't worship the past. Okay? I press toward the goal for the prize and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, which is not a defensive posture, by the way. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. So if you're mature, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. What does a same mind within a heavenly body in America look like? He says his brethren, join in the following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. The world will get what it wants, which is separation from God, whose God is their belly, it says, verse 19, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now, what I'm going to press on, we'll, we'll finish. It says, so for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that may be conformed to his glorious body. Anyone pump for a new body? Anyone? You know you're old when? How do you know when you're getting older? Young kids, they're not going to get this joke. They're not going to laugh. When you hurt yourself, when you get injured, sleeping. Can I get an amen? Who's done that? Right? So right around like 33, 34, you walk into work the next day like this. They're like, what'd you do, man? Did you play football? Like, no, I slept weird. I don't know what happened. You start hurting yourself sleeping. Your body is breaking down. Yeah? See? Look at them. They're lost. They're like, is that going to happen? It doesn't happen. I don't believe them. We'll see. Right? They don't believe. You're going to hurt yourself sleeping at some point. Why? Because our lowly bodies are breaking down. He says, you're going to get a body like Jesus has a body. I love that. Yeah? It's going to be pumped up. By the way, heaven is a cube. Okay, we don't know if there's stairs, probably not escalators, but the stairs aren't going to hurt when you walk up them. Okay, it's a huge cube. It's going to be epic. You can go up, down. We're going to have a lot of fun, but our bodies aren't going to hurt, not going to sweat, not going to be out of breath. Okay, thank goodness. Okay, not going to have a kink in your neck. All right. This is why it'll probably be my last sermon, just saying, saying. Anyway, so here we go. So it says, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. I'm not saying disregard your American citizenship. I'm saying put it in the right place, which is secondary at best. And here's where you get a restored view of it. Our American citizenship is secondary to our heavenly citizenship. There's repercussions though. There's, there's, there's ramifications. There's good ramifications, good restoration. Listen, no part of our secondary citizenship should distract us from our heavenly citizenship. Doesn't mean we're not called to it, that we can't work for restoration within it, but no part of our secondary citizenship should distract us from our heavenly citizenship. Paul didn't say you can't be a citizen of everyone else. He says, first and foremost, primarily you are a citizen of heaven. So we make it on earth as it is in heaven. And so our secondary citizenship, listen, here's the challenge. If you get nothing else from any of this, if you're mad, angry, excited, this is the main thing I want you to remember. Our secondary citizenship as Americans should point to our primary citizenship in heaven. The way you steward the citizenship that God has gifted you. I believe that American citizenship is a gift that God gave me. I thank him for it. I've been to a lot of other countries, a lot of depraved countries, even some nice countries that are very depraved when the lights go down. America's depraved. I am very thankful for this gift and the way that I want to steward this gift of this citizenship is by the grace of God every day 
making it reflect my primary citizenship more. That your secondary citizenship in all that you do would point to your heavenly citizenship. Hebrews 13, 13, verse 13 through 14 says, Therefore, let us go forth in him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Now it's interesting that it says, therefore, let him go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. He says camp for there, we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. I didn't expect to talk about the Marine Corps this much, but did you know that the Marine Corps calls all their establishments camps instead of forts like the army? Do you know why? The Marine Corps is a fighting force. We are called to go in, break things, change things, and get out. The army sets up forts. Those are long-term establishments. The Marine Corps says we will call everything a camp because everything for us is a temporary dwelling. Even if it's Camp Pendleton, it's been there forever. By the way, the government pays a dollar a year for that thing. It's larger than the state of Rhode Island. Okay. Uh, Nothing against the army. Okay. Except Fallujah and we had to fix it. But, and so the army... (laughs) So the army, sorry, uh, the, the army sets up forts because these are permanent establishments. The Marine Corps says we are different. We are a small elite group that lives in camps. Why? Because at any given moment we pick up and we're gone. And he says, you're outside the camp. You have no city. And we long, here's the hope. As frustrated as you are with me, point your eyes to Jesus now, please. Is that here's the hope that we've been called with our secondary citizenship to reflect our primary citizenship because we seek the one who is to come. Now, how does this play out? Very fast. Get this. I got a couple of of maybe challenging statements because I haven't had enough. It says, I I wrote, you should be more excited on any given Sunday than you are on the 4th of July. Any given Sunday, which is, a, which is a reunion, which is a practice for heaven with your heavenly community, you should be more pumped on a Sunday morning than you are on 4th of July. Challenging? Me too. You see me come dragging in here sometimes with my kids and my Americano, like, oh, right? But we should be more pumped on this. Why? This is heaven practice, right? We should be more excited on any given Sunday than we are on the 4th of July, that our secondary citizenship would point to our heavenly citizenship Get this, you have more in common with the Christian living in Afghanistan than you do your atheist neighbor. Think about that. You have more in common. The Bible says you have all things in common if you have Jesus in common. You have more in common with a Christian who converted in Afghanistan than you do your atheist neighbor who you mow your lawn with, you drive the same type of car, you go for football parties, you guys have nice exchanges. doesn't mean you love them any less, but you need to know that 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 Christian around the globe is closer knit to you because if we have Jesus in common, we have all things in common. This means that though we don't have to be happy with all new and changing policy, we have an eternal joy despite new and changing policy. Christians shouldn't spend time groaning about how America used to be, but rather joyfully proclaiming how great heaven will be. Forward. And though we work as salt and light in the civic arena, we know that God's work in building his kingdom is not hindered by earthly political setback. God's kingdom can rise while the world implodes. It doesn't mean we don't work here as reflectors of this heavenly kingdom with our secondary citizenship pointing to our primary citizenship. But you need to know that this is not the mark of God's work. God is always building his kingdom despite earthly political changes. And we do all this so that our light shine would so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our father on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. All right, let's pray. God, I pray that um, it, Lord, you, you know that I, I mean this. If I have offended Lord, I repent. Lord, but if what you have said has offended, we repent. 
that anything that came from you would be discarded, that it would not be held against your church, your bride, that which you have instituted, but that we would be willing to be stretched in all things with an unlimited gospel that penetrates every vestige. And I pray that we would see that our citizenship is a gift. It's not something we discard. That would be irreverent. It's something that we guide and we steward and we thank you for and we proclaim you with. We don't worship our earthly citizenship. We worship with our earthly citizenship as salt and light going into every crevice of society. Jesus, that you would be preeminent as we go, as we navigate waters in various debates and discussions and environments and authority structures and different administrations and states and local governments that that you would be our pursuit and that our citizenship on earth would be the repercussion of that pursuit. And so I want to thank you for this gift you've given me, for my family, for this ability to live in this country. I pray that we would take hold of the challenge to be salt and light in this country that we don't relinquish ground, that we are forward, that we are offensive for the upward call of Jesus and that has every implication for our citizenship. And so I pray that that balance would be struck in our hearts and in our minds, that we would have a renewed and a healthy and a relief in the understanding that your kingdom is being built. Despite any political regime around the country, your kingdom is being built. And there is a time when you will return and all the evildoers will be put to rest and they will be put outside of this new city, this new Jerusalem. And we will live under your perfect reign, flourishing and praising you, focused on you. And would that heavenly perspective be translated into our earthly citizenship as we go forward proclaiming this gospel. So Jesus, we love you, praise you behind, lift it up for your name on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.